0: Matthew 16 and verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell... Shall not prevail against it. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you are the speaking God and that you have revealed yourself to us in kindness, in mercy in infinite condescension. Lord, you have even taken pains throughout the centuries to make sure that we get a Bible that we can read in our language, in our modern vernacular. Lord, you have gone every generation. You continue to, to as it were, go out of your way to accommodate our weakness and our frailty so that we might know you and once we know you, Lord, that we might turn and, and worship and praise you. And so I pray that you'd do that very thing in this next hour. Just show us who you are. Lord Jesus, teach us about your church. And, and Holy Spirit, change our hearts. Make us think differently about the church, about the scriptures, about the world. From what we see here, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we were approaching a difficult passage in Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, and so what we've done is we have sort of pulled off the into a rest area for a little bit, and we've settled down and we've regrouped, and we've the, the picture. Hopefully, we've got out our maps and our we've checked our GPS coordinates, and we've sort of just made sure we know where we are and that we're all on the same page. We all. ...or understanding some of the fundamental ground rules of reading the Scriptures... ...not just in every individual verse, but reading the Scriptures as a whole... ...and what kind of presuppositions we believe, I believe, should be in the forefront of our minds... ...as we come to the Scriptures. I've said many weeks that we don't come to the Scriptures like Peter and Paul came to the Scriptures. We have more than they had... Uh, we have the, what we believe, to full, the, the full, complete revelation of God in the Scriptures. We don't need any more. God doesn't need to give us any more. Uh, we, we have what we have, and we need all that we have. And we need to use all that we have to understand how to read all that we have. And that's what we've been doing, is, is laying some of these, what I've called hermeneutical presuppositions or hermeneutical lenses that hopefully when we get them all in place, we all click them into place and we look through that scope, every passage of Scripture will now be hopefully a little more clear. Now when I say passage, that might not mean verse, that might mean book or chapter, but hopefully it becomes a little more clear and every passage does that. Every passage of Scripture gives us a new opportunity to remind ourselves of what we believe about this book and what it says and, and the presuppositions we have, what God is saying to those who will tremble at His Word rather than stand as judge over it. Every time we read the Scriptures, and hopefully for us, one of the presuppositions we've always had is this is the Word of God. Now, I didn't cover that because I hope that it's, uh, I hope that that is something we already knew and understood, but when we read the Scriptures... When you read it, when you walk away not having understood it or, or grasped some spiritual truth, you walk away and you think, I've received less than what I should have received. I don't feel that way when I read a billboard. If I don't understand it or I, I read the, you know, the advertisement and I say, well, I don't really get it. And I don't care that I don't get it. It doesn't matter to me. But the scriptures are different. Why? Because they're the word of God. We have that presupposition. And, and so now we're, hopefully, we're having, we're bringing all of these other presuppositions into it so that when we read it, if I walk away and I think, I'm not sure how that gets me to Christ, well, hopefully we feel like we're lacking. I've not gotten to the, the, the breadth of it if I've not gotten to Christ yet, and, and so on and so forth. So we've been reminded that the Lord Christ in his unique person. And substitutionary work is the crowning jewel of all divine revelation. That goes for the book of nature, but specifically the book of Scripture as we're studying. Christ is the centerpiece. The church of Jesus Christ then is the eternal plan of global proclamation, the, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Human history then is simply the record of God and his hands on working. In the affairs of men to bring about the end that he has decreed from eternity according to the counsel of his will. It is as if God has put his hand like a a masseuse and he's rubbing out the tension of the muscle or like the, the, the potter who is working a vessel of clay and he's bringing it to be exactly what he wanted it to be from start to finish. That's history. And when we read the scripture, that's what we're reading and when we saw last week that as God does this, this holy and wise God has dealt with men in a way of covenant, partly because that's just according to his good pleasure, but even more so because we had no ground to stand on. So he comes, we don't have any ground to stand on, he comes and gives us the ground to stand on and says, now if you'll just step up on that, we can, we'll, we'll, we can begin to work here, And he, that's how he deals with men. And hopefully you're beginning to see how all of this is connected. When I originally planned this series, this started out as pretty much just a paragraph. And it, it, it's all connected. Now So when I go through all of those things, Christ is the center of all divine revelation. The church is God's eternal plan. Human history is simply God working out His plan. God works this out by way of covenant. With all of that, when I say that, what is your general attitude when I begin to give those things, we walk through those presuppositions. Are you sad when you hear that? I don't think, I don't, I'm not sad. Are you fearful? Or do you feel like you're without hope? Or, you, or do you begin to worry, well, well, what if this plan goes awry? What if there's a, a piece missing? Well, I don't think you are. I think these truths hopefully should produce in us zeal in our Christian devotion, Confidence in the means and the methods that God has given us. If he's working out a plan, it's his plan. And then he says, here's what you need to do to help to play your part in this plan. If I'm doing what he said to do, I can be fairly confident, uh, certainly confident in what is going to happen. It produces in us expectancy, hopefully, to see what God will do in our generation. He hasn't taken his hand from the pot, the, the vessel, He's not walked away. It's not spinning if you've ever made pottery on a potter's wheel. If you take your hands away from it and you keep spinning, it, it just becomes a mess. God is not taking His hands away even in our generation. He's still working. And so we, we're expectant now. Well, what's, it gonna, what's He doing in our time? It produces fervency in prayer. Because we know that as we pray, God answers our prayers and, and works out His plan in in. in in His sovereign way and in accordance with our prayers and uses our prayers. It produces in us diligence to study and prepare ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. If He's working out a plan and, and the church is the plan, and, well, we're the church, then we had better be ready to play our part in the plan, to, to get, get able and ready to wield the sword of the Spirit, to sheath it when we need to, to pull it out when we need to, produces in us boldness in proclamation, knowing that His kingdom is forever. In an election, in our, in our world, you know, men have to go around and try to, to garner the support of their constituency, They're trying to convince somebody, I want you to see why this candidate is the best, and here's what you need to know about, his, this is His platform. That's not the position that we proclaim from. We're not trying to tell people, hey, Jesus is running for king, and here's why he would make a good one. We're proclaiming, Jesus is king. It's going to end really bad for you if you're not a citizen of his kingdom. When this rock falls, it's going to crush. In a word, I think these things should produce in us optimism. And this is the final lens that I think we should always read the scriptures from. That's optimism. I want to prove that from the text we read by way of exposition and then I'll support it with some other things and we'll apply it. I preached this sermon on May fifteenth, two 2016 at the end of our series that we did on ecclesiology and on the church. This was the last sermon and it was not recorded neither by the computer or by my phone And so I've I've sort of waited for the opportunity to preach it again. I've wanted to. It's always been the back of my head. And um, it's really weird to record preaching a sermon when nobody's here. So I didn't want to do that. So I've reworked it for this series. But the, the, the exegesis is still the same. It's the same truth and sort of the same outline. So look at this verse. Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we know the speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen he's the centerpiece of all divine revelation. He's, he's truly God and truly man for all eternity. When you speak of the incarnation of Christ's humanity, don't use past tense verbs. Uh, Christ, Christ was truly man and truly God. He is right now truly God and truly man. This is who's speaking, the, the founder of the church. The audience here directly is Peter. Peter had answered and spoken up on behalf of the apostles of Christ, who are the seed of the New Testament church. And now Christ addresses back to Peter, but still, I believe, addressing all of the apostles. The subject matter is the founding of the New Testament church. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church that's the primary assertion in this verse. I will build my church. Secondary assertion, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now it's that last phrase that I want to focus on. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'll open it up under two headings. Number one, the enemy of creation. And number two, the endurance of the church. And again, the goal is that you will see that we should be optimistic. So, number one, the enemy of creation. The Lord Jesus says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when we see the word hell in English, to us, we immediately begin to think of the lake of fire and sulfur. The place of eternal conscious torment under the everlasting wrath of God and yet away from the presence, the good and benevolent presence of God, the place where all of the wicked will spend their eternity paying their debts that they owe to God. That's what we think of when we see the word hell. But the word translated hell in, our, in the English Standard Version is the word Hades. And the word Hades was just the abode of the dead. It does not have reference to the moral character of the dead people. It doesn't necessarily always mean a good place. It doesn't necessarily always mean a bad place or the place where bad people go or the place where good people go. It's just the place of the dead. We use phrases like they passed away. Or they're no longer with us. Well, you got to give me more than that. You know, you're thinking something. Well, that's the kind of how this word Hades is. The same as the Old Testament word Sheol, it doesn't always mean good or bad. Jacob said, my gray hairs will go down to Sheol. He wasn't saying, I'm going to hell. He wasn't saying, I'm going to heaven. He's just saying, I'm going to the place where the dead people go. So it's the place where dead people go. The gates are the entryway into a city. If you've got a wall all the way around the city, nobody's coming in, nobody's getting out. But if you find the gate, that's how you get in and that's how you get out. And so the gates of hell or the gates of Hades just means the entryway into the abode or the dwelling place of the dead. Now I tried this with my family last night and it it took a little bit, took a little bit of pulling. How does one get passage into the dwelling place of the dead? We can't go there right now because we're alive. So how do we get there? You die. You You have to die. You have to die to get to the place where the dead people go. This phrase, gates of hell, was just a euphemism for death. Death. And so, our Lord is saying, I will build my church, and death shall not prevail against it, the church. Now, why does Jesus make it a point to say, death will not prevail against the church? Why would he not say, the devil will not prevail against the church, or... uh, sin will not prevail against the church or the world will never prevail against the church. Why does he say death? Well, I think it's because death has always been, from the beginning of creation, has always been the enemy of all of creation. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the curse upon disobedience. Death. Now Adam didn't immediately physically die, he eventually did, but he immediately was spiritually dead before the Lord. In Genesis 3:17 because of Adam's sin, the ground of the earth is cursed again because of sin. Because of sin, the grass withers and the flower fades. Paul says in Romans 8:20, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God brought a curse on the creation. And Isaiah 51 in verse 6 says, The heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. In other words, because of Eden, because of the fall of sin, all people are cursed and will die physically, physically, They're born spiritually dead. Those who remain in that condition will die eternally. They will experience the eternal death of hell. And all of creation is cursed by sin and doomed to fade away, to die, experience that death because of sin. After the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Sin spread to the next generation and death went to the next generation. In Genesis chapter 5... Eight times, and he died. And he died. And he died. Sin spread to all men, and so they were dying. Paul would say, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Therefore, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. And in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Death reigned on the earth. Death was promised to Adam. If you eat, you will surely die. It spread to all men, and it's just carrying out its orders, and it's spreading to every person from Adam's Loins, physically and spiritually. Ephesians two one. You are you are dead in your trespasses and in sins. Spiritual death, physical death, are the immediate consequences of Adam's sin, and death now reigns over all of creation, physically, spiritually, all of the sons of Adam, and the very place, the the ball of dirt on which we dwell, is being. Engulfed in death. Death is the great equalizer. Death respects no one. Death respects no thing. Death will eventually come to all people and all things. Death tears down and destroys. Death rips children from their parents. Death rips parents from their children, leaving orphans on the earth. If there's a case of suffering or torture, we'll say things like, "Well, it's better that they went on; they're no longer suffering." But death still won. We wouldn't say, "I'm glad they're no longer suffering," and "I'm glad they're not with us anymore." Death still won. I think Bodie Bachum says, "Death is always an enemy, never a friend." For the believer, it might usher us into goodness and blessing, but it's never a friend. Men can exercise, eat right, all of their days. Death will win someday. It will still find you. The most beautiful people of all of the human race will eventually wrinkle up and and rot. The most athletic people in all of humanity, all all over the earth, Their bodies will slow down, their muscles will stiffen up, and they will die. We pour the deepest concrete that we can pour, and it will corrode eventually. We plant the most beautiful flowers, and they will wither. Train up the world's greatest racehorse. Eventually, you will have to turn it out to pasture, and it will die. Practice routine maintenance on the best foreign made vehicle you can find, and eventually it will rust. Everything is under the dominion of sin. Everything. All that we can see and touch and know is doomed to fade away. Your most prized possessions will rot. My children are on a, a rotation with me to the dump so that they can see with their own eyeballs where all of their stuff is going to end up. Scraped up with all the filth and refuse of everyone's trash, and pushed into a hole into a truck, or crushed into the ground. And I let them watch me throw their old broken toys in there. Some of the stuff, not old and broken yet, but it needs to be gone. And I let them see it. Death comes to everything. The world's... Most powerful nations have always always been and will continue to be subdued and conquered by another nation. The world's greatest kings or presidents or leaders will all die or they'll pass down their kingdoms to their sons. And every time a death takes place, we are reminded of the curse of God on our federal head, Adam, because of his sin. It's because of sin. We're reminded that every one of us are are members of Adam's helpless race, tainted with sin in every facet of our being. We are totally, in the totality of our being, depraved, hideously offensive to God, deserving of punishment, destined for death. That's where we're going. Right now, while we sit here, we're dying. We're heading that way, every one of us. In everything we see, death is the enemy of all of creation. Nothing escapes. Death. Number two, the endurance of the church. Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Death will not prevail against the church. The great equalizer, the enemy of all creation, the cancer that respects no one and nothing cannot touch the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has no effect on us, maybe physically, but not eternally. Now think about that. Out of all of creation, stars and galaxies and moons and worlds and oceans and Blue whales and plankton and mountain ranges and subterranean rivers and kings, kingdoms, world powers, political systems, political strategies. Out of all of that, it is the church that is going to endure into eternity. The church. Now, why will the gates of hell not prevail against the church? Well, we've already seen. First, because of her eternal existence. The church finds its origin in the eternal plan of God. In other words, it started before we got here and it's going to be here after we're gone. The eternal decree of God, God decreed that He would save a people for Himself. He decreed the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, and within that decree, He chose for Himself or for His Son a bride in eternity. Again, you, God didn't elect a bucket and say, well, all right, everybody who can get into the bucket, you'll be going with me. He elected a people, and he predestined those people to the destiny which is mine. You will be my people for all of eternity. And this originated in his mind, in the counsel of the Godhead. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is self Sufficient and self sustaining. He does whatever he pleases. And so when God says, I will elect a people, it is done. And he does it. We saw from Ephesians 3 the mystery of Christ, hidden for the ages, and yet now revealed is that Jews and Gentiles are going to come together and form a body called the church, the spiritual body of Christ. She has an eternal existence originating in the mind and counsel of God, decreed by God in eternity, revealed by the apostles and prophets. The church has always been God's plan for the salvation and sanctification of His elect. God is immutable, doesn't have the ability to change. His purposes are settled. Therefore, the church cannot, will not concede to death. She has an eternal existence. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because of her covenantal foundation. You see, the largest buildings on the earth, what we do is we dig down really, really deep and pour these footers to make sure that the foundation will be be strong and stand firm. But if time goes on long enough, they'll crumble. That building will have to come down and they'll have to put something in its place. The church is not built on a foundation like that. It's not something that that God's doing and then someday he's going to have to rework it because, well, it's been so long since he's he's invested in routine maintenance. The church is built on the foundation, we saw last week, of the covenant of redemption. In eternity, the Father said to the Son, "You're, you're going to be my servant. You're going to be my servant to save a people. How does... How do the people of Jacob sound? Well, Father, I'll do whatever you have me to do. It's, it's my pleasure to do your will. That's sort of a small thing. You're right, my son. That is a small thing. I'm glad you asked. I'm, I was hoping you would ask. How do the nations sound? I'll make the nations your inheritance. and In the end of the earth, your possession. And it's within that covenant of the eternal Godhead that the church finds her foundation. And then just right on top of that then is poured this this more this other foundation in time called the covenant of grace sealed in the blood of the God-man, the Christ Jesus, where He actually accomplishes that which His Father sent for Him to do. The blood of God's Son secures, we saw in Hebrews, an eternal redemption. So, this is an unshakable foundation. It's rooted in the Godhead. We've got an eternal redemption. The gates of hell cannot prevail against a church built on this covenantal, eternal foundation. The church of Christ will also endure. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because of her victorious king. And this is even more important. We've seen that the church is the mystical body of Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, that enemy of all creation has already been defeated by our king as he acted in union with his bride, his body, and therefore, it can't prevail against the church. Jesus says in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. Christ has died. He suffered physical death. John makes sure that we know that based on his eyewitness testimony, the one who writes these things was a witness to them. I was there. I watched that spear go into his side. I watched blood and water pour out. He was dead. He, we could say he breached the gates of hell. And Christ has risen. He did not stay that way. He's not dead now. He was dead, but he's not dead now. And we who are the church are united to Christ by faith. We're no longer those who are in Adam. We are those who are in Christ. And so this the language John would use, I believe, is you've already participated in the first resurrection. Paul would say, you who were dead, God made alive just like He did His Son. The first resurrection from dead and trespasses to sin to we have been made alive with Him. He made us alive. We saw last Lord's Day night, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. We've already experienced one resurrection. We're just waiting on the second one. Because Christ has risen, we too shall rise. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our king did not defeat death with long-ranged missiles properly aimed Timed just right. Rather, he stepped out of rank. He walked to the front lines. He gave the enemy the opportunity to take him captive. Permission. Death. Remember when Christ was on the cross? He gave up his spirit. I'll die when I'm good and ready. Cry- Death. You can have me. Probably had a snicker on his face or a, a, a grin. You can have me. You win. And then once behind enemy, lie, enemy lines nestled deep within death's fort, he carried out the work of conquering his enemy and ours on our behalf from the inside. You can imagine for three days all of creation is watching and looking. All of the angels are standing in line watching and waiting. And then he arises victorious and he says where he waves the troops in. That's why we're called the church militant. He waves us in. He says, claim the spoils. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, this is what we do as the church. This is our job now as the the church of a resurrected king. We don't hide in the trenches. We jump out of the trenches and we gallop through strongholds, we say, there's a thought captive. I'll take that one. There's a thought captive. We're taking these thoughts captive. With every stride, we are proclaiming, looking at each other. And everywhere else, Christ has won the victory. It's already done, you see. that the, the battle is won. Christ did that. And so the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church not only because of her permanent institution or her unshakable foundation, but because Christ has already defeated death. John calls it the last enemy. If the last enemy has already been defeated, then there's nobody in the back of that line. It's already done, you see. So then here's the doctrine. As the new covenant community of faith, the church of Jesus Christ should be overtly optimistic in its outlook on the past present and future events. Now, let me open that up a little bit. The new covenant community of faith is the church of Jesus Christ. You remember the old covenant community came to Mount Sinai, but the new covenant community is Mount Zion, the assembly of the firstborn. This is what the author to the Hebrews says. By his blood, he bought the members of the new covenant. We take the cup. This is my Blood of the new covenant. If you drink in this cup, this is the new covenant. That's us. The new covenant community of faith is the church of Jesus Christ. We should be overt or overtly optimistic in our outlook. Overt means excessively or, or inordinately. We should be excessively optimistic. Not just kind of, you know, sometimes we talk about the resurrection. and That gets me sort of excited when you talk about that all the time excessively optimistic. If worldlings around us cannot pipe down about the latest election, and they can't help themselves but put a sign in the yard to let us know who they're voting for and who we should vote for, and they don't rest easy until their man is in office, then should we not at least be equally as adamant about who we know is the king? if not more so. And he's not king, again, by, by election or popular opinion poll. He was born king of the Jews. By, his, by right of birth, he is king. Why does it bother the men of the world so much when their color doesn't you know, cover the, the majority of the map? But they just get tore up. They fret so much. Who's going to get this office? And Who's going to get that office? professing Christians sit and bite their nails about the, whatever the latest legal action is against Christians. And I know there are good people who work, like the Christian Action League, who help pastors get out of prison and, and help churches, and they want to call us, and they want to get us to... It's good to be wise and to be smart. But most of these people, it seems, are convinced in their own hearts that the kingdoms of this world are supreme. What are we going to do if a man gets put in prison? Most of our New Testament was written by a man who got put in prison. So, we shouldn't be like them. We should not be that way about the kingdoms of the world as if they were supreme. We should be overtly optimistic. Our God reigns. So, and then thirdly, this goes for past, present, and future events. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was king yesterday, he's king today, he'll be king forever. And so, we should have been optimistic yesterday, we should be optimistic today, and we should be optimistic tomorrow. Now, yesterday, we can look back and say, Lord, forgive me, I wasn't thinking rightly. Today is a little bit easier because it's Sunday and we're all at church and this is, you know, it's easy here, now, but next year, next, the next ten years, it's, it might not be the same. Even still, Christ reigns. Then, the church cannot be defeated. As the new covenant community of faith, the church of Jesus Christ should be overtly optimistic in its outlook on past, present, and future events. Now, some qualifiers. This does not mean that as Christians, we rejoice in sin. You know, Paul's hypothetical Challenge. Well, should we just go ahead and sin that grace may abound? If we're so optimistic, should we not just, you know, just let everything go and look at the world and the way things are going and just rejoice anyway? No. It does not mean we rejoice in sin. We continue to mortify, to hate, to rebuke, to reprove sin. The church as a corporate uh, institution continues to be or should attempt to be the prophetic voice in the culture. We're optimistic... But is, you shouldn't be. If you're going to live like that, you shouldn't be optimistic. The church is optimistic, but you, you don't have any reason to be optimistic yet. And so we can continue to do that. This does not mean that we cannot mourn the wickedness of men. We are saddened by the wickedness of men. Not just because they don't agree with us, but because we care about their souls. We mourn the wickedness of our government Not just because we want the church to have peace, but because we care about their souls. We mourn because God's word is profane. God's law is ignored. Men take the the covenant of God on their mouths and they have no intention to live in God's way on the earth. They are are taking God's name in vain. The picture is they've got the little sports flags hooked to their windows. You know, you're going to the football game so you get your car all... Decorated out, and you're going to the football game with your flags fluttering in the wind, Jesus, 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 and you're swerving all over the road and you're cussing people and you're speeding. They have no intention, and that should make us mourn. That should break our hearts, not because they don't agree with us, but because our God is not being honored as He should. So, being optimistic doesn't mean we can't mourn for the wickedness of men, it doesn't mean that we should expect wickedness to vanish. I am not a post millennial reconstructionist. I don't think 2 Timothy 3.13 is ever going to be blacked out in our Bibles. Amen. Where he says evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it doesn't mean that we should expect everything to get better, but that doesn't mean we can't be optimistic. It doesn't mean that the church will not suffer. The verse right before that, 2 Timothy 3, 12... "...indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." It doesn't say dot, dot, dot... ...until you get all of the governments of the world to Christianize... ...and then usher in, you know, the, the utopian kingdom. Until that point... Well, no, he says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted... ...and evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse... Deceiving and being deceived. That is the condition of the, 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 the present age. So it, doesn't, but it, so it doesn't mean the church will not suffer. It means that in spite of all of that, knowing who we are and whose we are, we can be at, at one and the same time honest about the prevailing wickedness of evil men and of our culture and even the sin within the body of Christ and optimistic about the plan of redemption and the kingdom that is being built. Our attitude is sort of like the Apostle Paul where he says that he, they were treated as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. When people die, we say, well, there's, there's the enemy of all creation. Can we mourn? Yes, we may mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn just not like they do in suffering and hardship. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and are preserved. Preserved. As the New Covenant community of faith, the church of Jesus Christ should be overtly optimistic in its outlook on past, present, and future events. So then, by way of application, what can we do to build up our optimism? Maybe you say, I'm not very optimistic. I want to be. It's kind of hard for me to be optimistic. What can we do to build up our optimism and then sustain it and then live as one who is overtly optimistic about the past and the present and the future. What do we do? We do not. This is how. You, this is not the answer. Listen to the world's propaganda about what's happening in the world. That's not where we get our information. I got my newspaper. You know, close to two thousand years ago. That's all I need. This is. This tells me what I need to know about the state of things. I'm not saying don't watch the news, but don't let that influence the way you consider Christ's kingdom. What can you do? Number one, devote yourself to the church in her visible, local expression. We went to a missions conference yesterday and the the topic was foreign missions and I was so encouraged by by their their emphasis that the local church is is the center point and the sending unit of all foreign missions so how do you prepare the next generation for foreign missions go to church how do you prepare men to plant churches go to church just do what you're doing and then when men get it in their heads real very well go do it somewhere else with, with some more people devote yourself what greater cause is there in the world the government to give yourself to the government those crumble another nation might come and just take us over. And they might give us all the same haircut and put us in jumpsuits, and we're, we're taken over. That, that could happen. We're not invincible. The nations crumble. You're going to give yourself to your hobbies. Again, they'll rot. Go to the landfill and see all of the, the do dads that people spend their time with and play with. They're getting crushed in the, in the dump. It'll rot. You give yourself to a career... Eventually, someone else who is more qualified will come along and they will take your spot. So that'll be done. Money, it'll never be enough. Possessions, again, they're going to end up in the landfill. Do any of these things that men give themselves to, that we give ourselves to, even begin to compare? Right now is a good chance that we can, we can think rationally and logically and we can be honest. Do those things even begin to compare with the beauty and the glory of the local church as the only eternal institution. They don't. Now, that's not as easy to say when we're staring at the television or we're, we're investing in all of these things and we're giving ourselves to them. But when we're allowed by the Spirit to just be honest, let's just think seriously here. There's no question. It doesn't even begin to compare. The only... Reasonable response is devotion, just giving yourself. Your prayers, your time, gifts of service and encouragement, your presence, hearty approval, money. Devote yourself. Until you are hanging from a cross or tied to the stake or your head is rolling at the feet of some Captor, you've not devoted yourself to the bride of Christ like he did. There's always more you can do. Any devotion to the church is a storing up of treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. That's what it is. You're investing in what Christ is doing. When you honor his bride, and any man knows this, when you honor, when when, when his bride is honored... And respected and spoken well of. You like that. You're gonna, you're gonna I might not know this guy very well, but I like that. If if he's mistreating the bride, prostituting the bride out for his own pleasures, that doesn't, that doesn't end well, doesn't go well for that man. And Christ is the same. The church is his bride. You give yourself to her and seeing her nourished and built up and strengthened and, and purified, and that goes. Individually for yourself and in your families, we're all parts of the church. But that's going to build our optimism. Like I said, we're optimistic when we're together like this. Everything's fun on Sunday. Everything's grand and glorious. We're all happy. We hate to go home at night because we're all optimistic here. We're happy here. Well, if we did this every day, we'd be optimistic every day. Now, that's not really practical because we must work. But if even in our working, we're thinking I'm working for the kingdom. I'm working for the church. Everything I'm doing is to see this this bride purified. Even throughout the week, you're optimistic because I'm investing in the one thing that death cannot prevail over. Secondly, train your children to love the church. Train your children to love the church. In present-day America, we're not suffering for our faith yet. It may not be the same for our children and for our grandchildren. And our society thinks very little about the culture that our children are going to inherit. Even evangelical church culture cares more about building something that's cool and hip and relevant right now than they do what their children are going to inherit. If you preach a sermon series about a movie that's popular this summer... Next summer, that sermon series is completely irrelevant. It will mean nothing to any other generation. But that's all they care about. I've got to be cool now. But if our children are going to inherit our optimism, then we need to teach them to love the church of Jesus Christ. Because the church is going to endure after we're gone. Every head that sticks up above the back of the pew right now, eventually will be laying down in a hole in the ground. And every head that is below the back of the pew right now will eventually be raised up, hopefully, will be above the pews or not. Are they going to be here? Are they not going to be here? What's going to happen to Covenant Bible Church when we're gone? So That's what we've got to think about when we're, we're talking about you know, young church and what the future holds for us. Will there be a confessional? Orthodox, Reformed Baptist Church in this county in 75 years? Will there be a faithful gospel witness in this county in 75 years? We have to prepare our children to be the next generation who's going to fight the fight of faith. We were talking yesterday in the car about... They're already saying Europeans, the young people growing up in Europe, they're so beyond post-Christian that the children don't even know about the religion their parents rejected. If you can follow that train of thought. Well, we're, we're never far behind Europe. You know, the sun comes from there and over here. That's where 10 to 15 years, 20 years, and we could be in that same condition where our grandchildren don't even know about the faith their parents rejected. And in that, with that mentality... We may be raising up in our congregation those who will be evangelists, missionaries, shepherds, and teachers to an unreached people group called the Americans. We need to think about that. And that's not to the, not to the uh, setting aside of action, foreign missions from where we are, but we just have to plan train our children, train them to love corporate worship. And this is the hard part. This is the most difficult part. It's biblical and it's beneficial, but it's hard. And we begin to, in our minds, we begin to, to long for the meat pots of Egypt, you know. Oh, well, this is this is good, but it really was, it really would be a lot easier if I didn't have my children. I could pay attention longer and things like that. But it's biblical. And so we have to go through that process with every one of them. It's going to be several years where we're training them to love the corporate worship of the church and the meetings of the church. If the next generation is going to carry on the torch, they need to know what the torch is. If we don't even show them what the torch is, then they're going to come up and they're going to say, well, what, I mean, what do I do? And so we've got to train our children to love corporate worship. If we are truly convinced that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed through the church, then we will order our families accordingly. So it's not just, well, when you get here, well, now let's start getting ready, but even at home, family worship, train your children to love the church, teach them. This is, this is what the Puritans called little church, a little church in the home, but we're just getting ready for the big church, and this is beneficial, but we're, we're practicing for the big church, and use that language, tell them, we're practicing for big church, we're getting ready, we're learning, when somebody's reading the scriptures, you don't talk, you listen, but that, again, that takes a while. It's difficult, but we, we train our children to love the church. Number three, in a world that promises no safe haven for the church, prepare for eternity. None of these truths promise a safe haven for the church. They don't promise that we're going to be safe or secure. It's in the everlasting arms of Jesus that we're safe and secure, right? The Bible paints a different picture, even from the earliest days, even in Matthew 24. It's not going to be easy. You're, you don't, don't plan on being safe. Don't plan on being secure in this life. Many are going to suffer. In our world today, they, the, the statement that I hear over and over is that Christians are being persecuted now more than ever around the world. That's not abnormal. That's to be expected. We shouldn't expect safety or security or prominence or power. Jesus, well the Hebrews thirteen, twelve to fourteen, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. We're looking for that eternal city. If we are trying to build a city here that exists somehow without bearing the reproach Christ bore on this earth, we're not living according to this. Christ suffered outside the camp, so then we, we don't say, well, good, come back in and make everything better inside the camp. No, we go outside the camp and we suffer with him. And that's to be expected. The world promises no security, and so we then need to be preparing for eternity. Let me paint you a picture of that. Someday, every single believer from every single local church body will reunite at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Every Christian from every church that has ever existed will gather. Death will be no more... Every tear, every sadness, every discomfort, every struggle we ever had will be wiped from our eyes. They'll be gone, and we will forever live in the presence of our King. So prepare for that. Long for that. This world, this life, all of the things that pertain to this world and this life, they are not the end to which we labor and strive. This is not it. We have to all be constantly focused on the next world, the next life. That produces optimism. When you're thinking about what is to come, we can look at what is with with an eye to what is to come, and and we're optimistic. I'm excited. And fourthly, in a world that can cast doubt on our victory, look to Christ. What if the worst-case scenario presents itself? We look to Christ. The way the world system seems to be going, the laws that are passed or attempting to be passed, the way Christians are treated around the world. What if worse comes to worst? What if we do find ourselves tied to the stake or kneeling in the, the waves or whatever, in the water, or tied, chained to the, the stake as the tide comes in? What, what do we do? Am I, am I pessimistic at that point? No. I look to Christ. I remember there was once a time when my king went through this. He walked through this same curtain. He's, he made it out. We looked to him. Spurgeon said, quote, I think death thought it a splendid triumph when he saw the master impaled and bleeding in the dominions of destruction. Little did he know that the grave was to be rifled and himself destroyed by that crucified Son of Man. See, death can't win. It's already been defeated. We will reign with Christ for all of eternity. Revelation 22:5, They will reign forever and ever. The worst possible scenario that might begin to cast doubt and begin to make the church think you know what, maybe we should rethink our methods because this is not working out very well for our people. The worst possible scenario, all it can do is escort us immediately into the presence of our king where we will just continue to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. Worst case scenario. And so again, until your head or my head is rolling around, bobbling around the feet of a captor, We've not suffered for the church. We've not given ourselves as he did. The author to the Hebrews would say, you've not yet persevered to the shedding of your own blood. You've not gone that far. The entire history of redemption is not merely God just saving some sinners. It's about God redeeming a church, a bride. And we become members of the church through the new birth. Through the new birth, when you're born again, you're born into a family, a body that is older really than Genesis 1 and as as eternal as Revelation 22 it's just going to keep going Revelation 11:15 says then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ And he shall reign forever and ever. That sounds optimistic to me. I can't imagine the angels being pessimistic about that announcement. Revelation 19, 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake. Awake. When he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself. Let me slow that down. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Christ is the center of all divine revelation The church is the eternal plan of God for global proclamation because it's His bride, it's His body. Human history is just the record of God working out that plan. God has always dealt with men by way of covenant, and we should be overtly optimistic about all of that. And we should bring these things to the Scriptures. So as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of our Lord's strategy for victory. He didn't, he didn't plot a victory, plan out. And you go into the city and draw them out while we bring some troops around the back to take the city. While he didn't plan that, his strategy for victory was die. I'll die. And in his death, when he hung on the cross, that was not the, the low point of redemptive history. That was the apex. That's the linchpin. Remember, he says, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself now is the ruler of this world cast out. He was telling his men, victory is about to come, boys. Get ready. By his death, then he secures life for his bride. So take a couple minutes and think about that with optimism, and then we'll come to the table.